Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Friends, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. We have been having an exciting summer. We, our school, Techie for Life, has expanded a little bit and we just moved to a new space in the the third floor of the office building that we're in. And we've been remodeling it and getting moved in. And it is just a beautiful space. And we're just finishing the last details on it. And it's just so exciting to be in this new space. And it's got beautiful views and lots of big windows. And anyway, there's a fun vibe happening. And it's just been really neat to see the growth of our program and and the good work that we're doing there. And just everybody's really excited to be in this this beautiful space that we've got. So anyway, it's been an exciting time for our program. Anyway, today I want to talk to you about one of the biggest questions I get asked when I'm coaching parents of neurodiverse children, teens, and young adults. Or like when parents are looking at sending their kids to our school, Techie for Life, And that question is, how do you motivate them? How can I motivate my child? Or how do you motivate your students? And it's a great question. And Jason's touched on it in one of our previous episodes about motivation and discomfort. And it, it comes up a lot because parents are dealing with kids that maybe their son or daughter won't get off their screens. Or they they just want a game all day and all night or they just want to stay in their room, or they won't do chores or help out around the house. Uh, Maybe there's issues with hygiene, which we've touched on in other episodes on this podcast. Maybe they won't exercise or eat healthy, or they won't go to school, or they won't get a job. And everything that the parent has tried doesn't work, or they just don't know what to do. And so when we talk about motivation, there's some important things to understand when you're looking at it as the parent of a neurodiverse child. So one of the first things that I think it's really important to be aware of is that you don't ever want to assume if your neurodiverse child isn't doing something that it's a motivation issue. Okay, so we want to look beyond that first and question whether this is actually a motivation issue or if it's actually something to do with their development. So a lot of things that seem maybe common sense to us, or it just seems like they should have that. They should be developed in that area because maybe they are able to speak articulately or um, they're brilliant in certain areas. But that doesn't mean that they have the foundational skills in other areas. And so you always want to consider first if the reason they're not doing something and it looks like they're not motivated to do it you always want to consider if it's, it might actually be a lack of developmental skill. You want to look at that first, because otherwise you might end up contributing to their shame-failure cycles that they can spin in, which leads to hiding and avoiding, making excuses. And all of those things also continue to mask what the real issue might be. 
And it's also to be aware that if they're physically or emotionally overwhelmed, like developmentally, they aren't good at managing their emotions. And, or maybe they're just overwhelmed from sensory overload or something sensory-wise. They're not going to have as much emotional capacity to be consistent with tasks that are mentally challenging or mundane. So something that, well, they could do it today. You know, they did it yesterday. Why can't they do it today? Well, they may not have the developmental skill level to manage their emotions to be able to do that particular thing consistently. So if they're not good at managing their emotions and they're spent, they're not going to have the emotional capacity to take on something that's challenging or tedious or takes a lot of like brain effort on a consistent basis. That is actually a developmental issue. Okay? They, they, aren't, they haven't developed the skill set to manage their emotions to be able to continue with things. You always want to take a look at that. Um, I used to get really frustrated with our, our son, our second oldest son, Lee, when he one day could do something beautifully, but then the next day, or maybe he could do it three days in a row, but on the fourth day, just couldn't do it. And I thought he wasn't motivated or I thought it was some other issue, but really it was he just didn't, hadn't developed the emotional capacity to sustain that task over time where other children could keep it going because they, they did have that emotional development in place. So number one, you want to take a look at, is this actually a motivation issue or could it be a lack of development? A developmental issue. They haven't built the skills yet to be able to do the task or to do it consistently. Now, when we talk about motivation, and if it is an actual motivation challenge, when we talk about motivation, we can break it down into two basic kinds extrinsic motivation or intrinsic motivation, or it could be a combination of both of those two. Extrinsic motivators are often short-lived, and they actually undermine our overall goals. While intrinsic motivation is not only more effective, it's usually more sustainable. So when we're motivated intrinsically, it's sustainable. When it's extrinsic motivation, we're dependent on that external motivator. And this is how we, there's studies that show this, and it, it seems counterintuitive. But there were some psychologists, Mark R. Lepper and David Green from Stanford and the University of Michigan, who were interested in testing and understanding extrinsic motivators and intrinsic motivators. So because parents so often use rewards as motivators for their children, they recruited 51 preschoolers between the ages of three and four. And each of these children were selected for the study because they had an interest in drawing. Because for the study, it was critical that they already have a natural interest in it. And they wanted to see what effect introducing rewards would have on these children who were already fond of, of the activity. So the children were then randomly assigned to one of the following conditions. One, they were given an expected reward. So in this condition, children were told they'd get like a certificate with a gold seal and a ribbon if they took part, if they did artwork. The second group 
got a surprise reward. In this condition, the children would receive the same reward, but they weren't told about it until after the drawing activity was finished. And then in the third group, the control group, there was no reward. Children in this group just didn't receive a reward and they weren't given any expectation of it. They just watched them do art or how much they did art. And so these children were invited into separate rooms to draw for like six minutes. And then afterwards, they were either given the reward if it was expected, or they were given a surprise reward or no reward at all. And then they watched these children, these three different groups over the next few days to see if these children would continue drawing on their own accord. So the expected reward group, their amount of spontaneously doing artwork and interest in doing art drastically went down. And there was no statistical difference between the group that got a surprise reward or the group that didn't get any reward at all. So the group that had an expected reward, not only did it decrease by around half the amount of art that they wanted to do after that, the quality of the art that they did produce was deemed less aesthetically pleasing by um, people that were judging the, the artwork. So introducing an expected reward decreased the amount of artwork that they wanted to do. It almost like took away their desire to do artwork. And when they did do it, it was not done to the same level that they were doing it before they had an expected reward. And this has been proven in study after study after study with all different ages, children and adults. They've done studies of like trying to get people to donate more blood. And so they introduce like a monetary reward of some kind if to get people to donate more blood and the numbers dropped drastically for how many people would actually go and donate. Um, so over and over, they've, they've been shown incentives to quit smoking. It, it actually cuts down and people start lying about how much they're smoking. Like it creates these disincentives to actually do it long term. It might, it works short term. Like they quit smoking maybe for three months, but then they immediately go back to it when the reward is removed, when the, when it's done. So after like all of these studies that people have looked at, one of the conclusions was that tangible rewards tend to have a substantially negative effect on intrinsic motivation. Even when tangible rewards are offered as indicators of good performance, they typically decrease intrinsic motivation for interesting activities. And according to research, extrinsic rewards particularly the if-then kind, like something that's contingent. Like, if you do this, then you'll get that. It suffocates self-motivation and creativity. So it's interesting to look at that and think about, for example, what message we might be sending when we pay our kids to do chores. If we do an if-then, if you take out the trash, then I will pay you such and such money or give you such and such reward, we end up sending a very clear but very misleading message that the only reason to do this task is to get a reward. And no one in their right mind would do this task unless they're going to get a reward for it. So a, an obligation or responsibility that you have 
as being part of a family and contributing and helping keep a like a home tidy. Instead of having it be that motivation, we now turn it into the only reason to do this is so you can get paid. So if you don't get paid, why would you ever do it? And that that it it makes you rethink these typical approaches that we have to try to incentivize our kids to do things. So basically, it it comes down to do you want to teach your kids to do something because they'll get a reward or get a payment or compensation of some sort? And then when that ends, they just stop doing it? Or do you want to teach your kids to do things because they want the actual innate benefit of doing the thing? Or or the benefits of becoming the kind of person that does that thing? Like, it's beneficial to take out the trash. We get to live in a home that doesn't stink and have garbage everywhere. Like, just the act of taking out trash is beneficial. And being the kind of person that takes out the trash has long-lasting rewards in and of itself. Now, I want to talk about how this plays into the brain and why this effect may be. Why giving rewards actually can have the opposite effect on motivation. So there's many parts of the brain, and there's a lot of complex functions happening within the brain and different names and parts and things that the brain is doing. But to simplify it and for my purposes, just to keep things like clear and easy to understand and follow, I like to break it down to just two basic things, the, the, the lower brain and the higher brain. So the lower brain controls our limbic system, and it sits lower in our brain at the top of our spine. And it's the part of our brain that has the job of keeping us alive and safe. It's also the part of the brain where the amygdala responsible for releasing epinephrine or or adrenaline or cortisol hormones that send us into that fight-flight freeze response get generated, okay? So that lower brain, that its job is to keep us alive, and it's motivated by three things, which which are called the motivational triad. So the lower brain is the part of our brain that is motivated to seek for pleasure. If you eat those berries, it keeps you alive. Keep eating berries, right? Keep eating that good food. That's going to keep you alive. So it's the pleasure response to food or also sex, right? If sex feels good, rewards you, seek for that pleasure, and we procreate and, and survive as a species. So seek pleasure. Then the other part is avoid pain. So if you jump off that high rock and break your leg, you could die. Like this is like our primitive brain. You want to avoid pain because that could kill you. And then the third thing is to be efficient. So don't work too hard and waste energy. It's the part of our brain that's like, you want to stay efficient so that you have energy in case a tiger jumps out at you to eat you, you can run away and, and stay alive. So the lower brain's job is to keep us safe. And it's that motivated to seek pleasure, avoid pain, be efficient, like boiling it down to the most simple basic. And the brain wants those things right now, like immediately, like your safety is up of utmost top priority. So it's thinking now, how do I keep you alive right now? Our lower brain, the limbic system and and the parts that lower brain that controls these functions doesn't know how to process concentrated or artificial amounts of things. So, for example, 
that part of our brain does not know how to process, like it doesn't understand processed sugar. It's like, oh, sugar, this is good for you. You need more of that that keeps you alive. It doesn't understand or it can't differentiate a a concentrated, non-natural form of sugar being actually bad for you. Like it just knows there's sugars in things and that's good. It keeps you alive. It doesn't recognize that all that candy is going to slowly rot your teeth and possibly lead to terrible health problems and, and eventually kill you. It also doesn't understand how to process, for example, concentrated forms of sexual um, stimulus, like pornography, where there's no work or effort put into a relationship or connection, or it's just right there for you for the visual pleasure. And so it doesn't understand how to process that. And it's like, oh, more of that. We need that to procreate and, and further the species. It doesn't realize that that's not actually <laughs> taking you there. Or, for example, video games, right? Like, so video games are this like artificial concentrated form of, of gaming and these rewards responses that happen in the brain. The brain doesn't know how to process that. It's like, oh, we're making progress. We're doing this good thing. Um, it's so stimulating. The brain doesn't know how to like differentiate. Oh, this isn't actually helping me live in life. It's just really visually and concentrated and stimulating. And the brain's like, oh, I need more of that, more of that, more of that. So when you understand that, of course, our children want to game or enjoy screen time. It's extremely pre- pleasurable. And the brain thinks, oh, I need more of this to stay alive. Um, I need to seek after that pleasure. And of course, our children don't want to take out the trash. That's hard. That's uncomfortable. It's kind of painful. It takes energy, right? Of course, our children don't maybe want to shower or brush their teeth or, or do these hygiene things because it takes effort and work. And I just want to be efficient and not expend lots of energy for something that maybe I don't see as being important. And what's interesting about this motivational triad that's actually very necessary to keep our species alive, in modern times, to be successful, we actually need to do the opposite of what our motivational triad, like what the lower brain is motivated by. We actually need to like avoid false pleasures. We need to learn, lean into healthy discomfort and we need to put in effort to be successful. So it's like the opposite in modern times. So when you have extrinsic motivators, it means you're motivated to perform an activity to earn a reward or avoid a punishment, okay? To seek pleasure or avoid pain. And it comes, extrinsic motivators come from outside us, okay? In the form of compensation, punishment, or reward. And in parenting, you know that you're tapping into extrinsic motivation if you're trying to impose your will on your child and you hold the power in that exchange. So it's like, if I'm doing an if-then reward, if you do this thing, then I'm going to give you that, you are tapping into extrinsic motivation. You're trying to incentivize their lower brain's motivational triad, which is just temporary. It's what's immediate right now to keep them alive focused. And And it seems like, oh, this is working, but then you try these extrinsic motivators, over time you realize that they stop working. Over time, these if-then types of rewards that are external, that tap into the lower brain motivators, motivation, 
it stifles intrinsic motivation. The quality of their performance lowers over time. It smothers their natural creativity. It actually discourages good behavior. We're just doing it to get the reward, not to be good. It incentivizes cheating and shortcuts and unethical behavior. <laughs> I let me pause here. I, I still go back to the time when we had our two oldest boys. We hadn't had them very long, and we were trying to incentivize them to do certain better behaviors. And I can't remember what it was even. Like I was trying to get them to do homework or if it was jobs or something. And I bought them this Game Boy game. Game Boy systems were all the rage back then before smartphones. And I knew it was a game they were really excited about. I'm like, okay, if you guys can do this certain thing, I can't remember what it was, but if you can do this certain thing over a certain amount of time, like two weeks, then you can earn this Game Boy game. And then I hit it. And I just would remind them, you can earn this if you get... Well, lo and behold, they went and found it and they were secretly playing it. And I didn't know. And they weren't motivated. I'm like, oh, why aren't they motivated to earn this thing? Well, they'd like found it and just were already playing it. Like they, they, were, they wanted it so bad. And it was just about getting that thing that they went and got it. And they, I, I just totally caught me off guard at the time. So when we're tapping into that external motivation, it does. It incentivizes cheating, um, shortcuts, lying, that kind of thing. And it shows it in the studies. It also, and this is really important to realize, it creates an addictive mindset. Like I've got to have that thing. It comes about getting the thing, getting the reward. And it just, in general, fosters short-term thinking. It's all about getting the thing, not over time being the kind of person that does such and such. So ultimately, that if-then reward, or even if-then punishments, right? It creates this wrong idea that the only reason you should do something is to get that reward or to avoid that punishment, not because of the inherent value or benefits. Okay, for example, let's clean and tidy so we can enjoy a beautiful, pleasant space to live in, or let's brush our teeth to take care of our teeth so we can have nice breath. It's all about, oh, if I brush my teeth this, these all week and check off the stickers on the chart, then I get the prize. And that's the only reason I would do this, is to get the prize. Now, intrinsic motivation is when you're motivated to perform an activity for its own sake and for your own personal satisfaction. It's motivation from the inside instead of outside of us. And intrinsic motivation engages our own free will. It's I hold the power, not somebody outside me that holds the power that's trying to get me to do something they want me to do and they're going to give me something if I do it. It's I'm doing it because I want to. That's a really important key thing to understand. One is engaging your will if you're imposing it on someone, but when, you, when you've got intrinsic motivation, it's, because it's their own personal will that's engaged. The individual holds the power. Now let's talk about the higher brain. We talked about the lower brain. Now let's talk about the higher brain. The part of our brain that I like to refer to as like the, the functionings that happen in our brain, it's the prefrontal cortex and it's the part of our brain that is logical and it's more developed. And it's actually above the lower part that's at the top of the spine. So it's like the, I just think of it as like the higher brain, higher functioning um, part of our brain. And there's lots of functions going on there, but just for simplified 
purposes. I call it the higher brain. And it actually surrounds the lower brain. And the higher brain is motivated by three main things. So the the higher brain's motivational triad, if you'll if you will, is one to direct your own life, right? To have autonomy and free will. Very motivated by that. Two, it's to be able to learn and experience and grow and develop. To develop mastery, to, to accomplish things, have experiences, to be challenged and, and be brave, right? And then the third is to serve a higher good, to have a higher purpose, to connect with others and give back, to contribute, to be a part of things. So those three things, to direct your own life, to be able to learn and grow and experience, and then to serve, to give back, to to, to be a part of something, to have purpose to your life, not just to seek pleasure, avoid pain, and be efficient, but to like have a purpose to, to what you do and, and how you give. When your child is engaged in higher brain pursuits, they're naturally self-motivated because it's coming from within, right? And they're learning, they're growing, they're taking on challenges, they're accomplishing things, they're creating they're connecting with others. They're fulfilling their purpose in life. They're pursuing passions and interests for the inherent value in them. Um, they're willing to feel uncomfortable for a higher goal. As long as it's not too overwhelming or too hard or, or too far above their developmental level, right? So it's willing to, to trade temporary discomfort for long-term benefit where the the lower brain is motivated by short-term comfort and often at the trading of long-term discomfort right but the higher brain is willing to do the uncomfortable thing to get the higher benefit so i'm willing to go and exercise and run that mile and that temporary discomfort for the feel good for the rest of my day how it feels to have exercise and i just feel more alert and healthy and more energy and overall good health, right? I'm willing to put in the pain to get the benefit. That is a higher brain, higher pursuit. So how can you help your child develop self-motivation or intrinsic motivation? When we look at motivation, we have to keep in mind that our lower brain is always there, okay? So when we want to avoid sweets or, or not eat unhealthy foods, our lower brain's always going to be there to say, hey, that, that tastes really good. You, sh- you really do want to eat that, right? Or when we want to do something uncomfortable like exercise, the lower brain's always going to be there to say, hey, you know, let's just not do that. That's too hard. It's too painful. We'll do, do it tomorrow. Or when we want to learn a new skill or study something or, and work at it, our brain's like, oh, it's too much effort. It's too hard. It's just easier to like go watch a movie on Netflix. So we have to keep in mind that the lower brain's always going to be there, kind of nagging on us. The second thing is, is that if your child doesn't feel safe, they don't feel okay, their lower brain survival instincts are going to be kicked in. And for your child to, to kick into their higher brain desires, they've got to be able to feel safe and okay. If they don't feel safe and okay, they're just in that immediate, I got to get safe again. I'm in danger. I'm 
going to die unless I get this need met. It's really, really important to understand that if they don't feel safe and okay, and for a lot of our kiddos, if they don't have friends, they don't feel safe. They don't feel okay. They feel left out, and that feels very scary and dangerous. If they're in that space, they're in that fight, flight, freeze, non-logical thinking part of the brain, the emotional, reactive part of the brain. And you're not going to be able to tap into their higher motivation, their, their higher brain pursuits, if they don't feel safe. But the higher brain, when they do feel safe, the higher brain can, is always in charge. The lower brain might be shouting very, very loudly, but to actually act, it's a decision from the higher brain. The higher brain is actually what controls how we act, how we behave, how we move forward. So when we feel safe and we feel okay, it's much easier to listen to that higher brain, higher aspirations part of us. But when we don't feel safe, the lower brain really wants to kick in. There's four strategies that I want to offer to you to help you tap into your child's intrinsic motivation, into their higher brain motivators. The first one, and this is very critical, and I know who I'm talking to, and I know this is a really hard ask, but the first one is to stop micromanaging. It kills intrinsic motivation. You want to encourage age-appropriate and developmentally appropriate levels of autonomy whenever you can. And with our neurodiverse kids, sometimes you have to get really creative with this. But we've got to tap into their own free will for why they do something. And when we are micromanaging, it is because we want them to do something, not because they want to do it. So when we're wanting them to do it and we're micromanaging, we are totally tapped into their lower brain motivational triad. The only reason they'll do it is because they want to avoid the pain that we might inflict on them with punishments or they're only doing it because of the rewards that they might get from us. They're not doing it because they actually want to do it. We've got to stop micromanaging. And anytime that we can engage them with their own free will and tasks, that's going to have a long-term benefit and skill development. So you want to go to where they're at before you add your input on things. Where are they at developmentally? Where are they at in their understanding of why we do something? You want to meet them where they're at. You want to understand where they're at before you try to tell them what to do, right? And you want to encourage where they're at to mentor them into seeing where they could go. The second tip I have for you is to seek to match. Okay, seek to match up your child's personality, interests, and developmental skill level with expected activities. So again, this is really important. We always want to make sure we're matching their developmental level. So for example, with chores, maybe you have them take care of the pets because they love the pet, you know, they love the dog instead of taking out the trash. So we tap into, okay, let's give them specific jobs that we know they're already going to be somewhat motivated by. You might match up, seek to match up a job with their personality. So one of, so my daughter, she loves I've discovered if you just give her, hey, I need you to, these are your jobs, this, 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 and this. And she just like wants to be able to go and do them by herself, get them done quick and be done with it. 
She's very pragmatic that way. Where my other daughter is super socially motivated. So to tell her to go do something on her own is just never goes well. But if I'm with her, if we're working together, or if she has to clean her room and I go in and I'm with her chatting, she will get that room cleaned up beautifully. She's an amazing organizer. But I've got to match her personality. She needs, she wants it, she is very motivated by it being a social experience. Somebody with her, not all alone. Um, or she'll, if we put music on, that also will help. It helps her like stay engaged in it and stay focused and do it. So matching expectations with their personality will help things go much easier. And when you look at extracurricular activities, seek to match your child's personality developmental level um, and their interests with their extracurriculars. One of my sons, we, we tried some different sports, but they just, he really struggled in, in different aspects of each sport. And then we found water polo. And it was like the perfect combination of the things that he was really good at. And he just thrived in that sport. Where other sports he struggled in, but but water polo was this beautiful combination of all the things that he liked about sports and, and was the parts that were good about them. Um, my son Lee, we did lots of sports, but he never did great with sports. But he loved acting and piano and music, and so he thrived in those and he was very motivated to do those. But when we would take him to go play soccer, he was bored, he'd be picking blades of grass, he was distracted, this wasn't his thing. My other son ended up being the thing that his extracurricular that he really connected with was scouting, with it was adventure, and he um, actually had a lot of common sense when it came to scouting types of things, and building fires, and, and all the different aspects of scouting. So that was a really great match for him. So seek to match up their personality with their interests and their developmental skill level. And you're going to have a child that is motivated to do that thing because it matches with them. The third thing is to partner with them. Okay, so this looks like communicating and inviting collaboration on like maybe your overarching goals for them and for your family. For example, your goals for your family's quality of life. You know, our goals to keep a home clean and tidy or our goals to stay connected as a family having a game night or something, or, or your goals for their growth and development. So partnering with them on your goals for them. So that might look like, hey, I really want to support you in having extracurricular activities to help you develop skills and talents and interests. And I'd like to help you find one that you like. And they're the one choosing it, and you're the one facilitating it. Let's help you find something that you like. Not forcing, well, I want you to do this particular activity because this is what I want you to do. I want you to play piano because all my kids are going to play piano. That's how I used to be. I had that mindset of like, being a good mom means all of my kids know how to play piano. Well, guess what? One of my sons did not enjoy piano and the other one loved it. And guess who practiced and had intrinsic motivation when it came to piano? And guess who didn't? And when I finally dawned on me that one would play it on his own, not when he had to practice, but the other one never touched the piano unless he had to practice and I was forcing him. And then when he would do it, it was like half done. He didn't really put much effort into it. So you want to match up and partner with him. Let's help you find things that you enjoy and want to be a part of. For a young adult, 
Maybe it's looking like, hey, I'm willing to continue to support you financially or whatever if you are working towards progressing to become an independent adult. So I'll provide for you so you can pursue an education or outside employment, or I'll I'll provide for you so you can get help in doing those things. But letting them lead out on what that looks like, what kind of support, how much support, or where they want to go to school, or how they want to do that. And then it might be a conversation around, but you know, if you want to spend all your time gaming day and night, that's a fine, that you, you know, if that's what you want to do, but you're going to have to find your own way to support that lifestyle. I'm not interested in supporting that. I'll support you on things that further you to help you be independent, but I'm not going to support you in things that keep you from being independent. So you'll have to figure out a way to support yourself in that, which is also a way of helping them learn how to support themselves, right? The fourth thing, and this is one of my very favorites, it's amazing how well this works. It's to appeal to their higher self on the shared goals and values that you have with them. Appealing to their higher motivations. Appealing to that, that part of them that does want to grow and develop and to be autonomous and to be a part of things and, and give and fulfill their purpose in life. So it's getting you out of that, you need to do this thing or not do this thing because I'm telling you, it's, hey, I'm curious about how you feel about this and let's see if we don't have some common values here. For example, you know what? I know that you appreciate kindness. So let's be kind and supportive of each other and figure out ways to do that. Or I know you like to have fun. Could we make time to have fun together? Like, can we take a break from the screens and have some time to connect and do this other thing? Or maybe it's, you know what? I know you don't want to leave things gross for other people. So let's figure out a way that we can live in a clean, tidy space together. Like, let's figure out some ways we can work together on this. Because I know you don't really want to put other people out and, and make our space gross, you know, or messy or stinky, right? Like, appeal to that part of them that, that does have good desires. It's partnering with them. It's approaching them from a place of, I want to connect. I want to understand where you're at. Curious about that. I have compassion for you. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. And then it's tapping into that part of them that wants meaningful things out of their life. Not just always going after temporary, immediate pleasures. Now, these four steps, they don't work quick and immediate like a spanking or yelling at your kid, right? They do take a little bit of time to nurture. And it takes time to nurture the kind of connection with your son or daughter where they want to connect with you and talk to you and hear you. It, it takes some nurturing to have that kind of relationship. But when we're willing to do that and put that investment of time in, that is where you're going to really be able to have influence in their life and be able to mentor them. And that's what's actually the most effective and sustainable in the long term. When you can tap into their natural intrinsic motivators 
and help them want you know, and see and be a part of, have ownership in who they are, who, who they're becoming, where they put their time and energy because of the internal satisfaction that comes from that, not because somebody's going to give them a reward or consequence. So I hope that gives you some new perspectives on, on how to approach this. Number one, taking a look at, is this even actually a motivation issue or is this actually a developmental skill development issue? Always taking a look at that first with our neurodiverse kiddos. We don't want to set them up for failure. And so you have to dig around on that a little bit. And then if it is a motivation thing, we want to take a look at, okay, how do we tap into their internal motivation? That part of them that does want to do good things in the world. Let's tap into that and connect to that part of them and try to avoid just the quick, temporary, short-term, lower brain motivations, but really tap into those long-term motivations. And, and again, to be able to do that, they have to feel safe and okay. And then that's when you can tap into those higher motivation parts of them. So I hope that you find this helpful. And if, if you're struggling with this, if you're having a hard time even having the kind of relationship where you can even connect on that, getting coached can be so helpful to work through our own blocks and issues and thought patterns that keep us stuck and help us really open up to how to be able to truly connect and nurture in a way that our kids feel safe and they feel nurtured and they open up to us so if you if you'd like to get some help with that um, go check out our website again that's jasondebbie.com and you can find out how to get signed up get on my waiting list for coaching and I would love to help you it's amazing when you when you get coaching and, and break through those things that keep you stuck and it just opens up things in a whole new way it's, it's a kind of amazing I'm a big fan of it I love getting coached myself. So anyway, I hope you have an amazing week and take care. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com.